Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 7 through verse 13. Hebrews 8, 7 through 13, once again, God's word from the New Testament. God's word. Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let's pray. Tis the season to give gifts. Yeah, it's that time of year again when you ra- tear through wrapping paper to get a present. And whether you are giving or getting, whether it's expensive or, ex- or inexpensive or extravagant, there's basically one main requirement. The gift has to be new. Indeed, to wrap up something old or used just feels wrong, if not offensive. Now, wherever this comes from, most likely marketers, we prize the new. Without much thought, the new just feels better, more valued. But is this always the case? Well, if your shoes are like Swiss cheese, a fresh pair is better. When your car spends more time with your mechanic than you... A new car is dreamy, and yet your wife will splurge on a new power tool for you, and it's a piece of junk compared to your old one. Your new desk is basically sawdust held together by glue and plastic, and it's rather worthless compared to the oak one that your grandma gave you. Yes, no matter what commercials may say, the new is not always better. Skepticism towards the new can be a very healthy thing within us. For sometimes the new is just garbage in shiny paper. And yet, if the new is higher grade, you need to be shown the evidence. Well, Hebrews has the task of persuading us that there is something new and greater. And so he pulls out all the facts to prove its excellence. So, in the beginning of chapter 8, the tale of the two temples was set before us. There was the earthly sanctuary raised by Moses and the heavenly tent fashioned by God. And Moses' tent of witness was the replica, the toy model of the true holy place in the world above. Just as God's craftsmanship surpasses man, so the heavenly temple 
outstrips the earthly one in every way. Likewise, with Christ being a minister in the genuine tabernacle above, he has a more excellent ministry than Aaron of old. Jesus is the superior mediator of a better covenant. And yet, what makes this covenant better? It is a newer covenant, but what is new can often be suspect. Now, in our day, sure, we favor the new and we are prejudicial against the old, but in ancient times, they tended the other way. They often preferred the old and despised the new. For them, new and better didn't belong in the same sentence, just like youth and wisdom rarely meet. Well, so the author has some explaining to do, which he does. If the first covenant had been faultless, faultless, there would have been no need for a second. Here, he labels the old covenant and made at Sinai as the first one, while the second covenant is the new one that Jesus mediates. This is the old versus the new, the first versus the second. And he makes a rather simple point, namely, God does not fix it if it's not broken. If God issues a second, then something must be wrong with the first one. For it's an established fact that God inaugurated a new covenant in Jesus. This, then, can only mean that the old covenant was faulty. The Lord replaces that which is flawed and defective. Now, of course, this isn't the easiest pill to swallow, for the Mosaic Covenant was, or the, uh, to, to think that the Mosaic Covenant was in some way unsound. But wasn't it the work of God? Yes, the Lord gave the law. He instituted the covenant at Sinai, and it was over a thousand years old. How can the old covenant be faulty? This requires some persuasion, which is what is coming up. But this point needs to be firmly fixed before us that the fault lied with the covenant itself. The old covenant of the law was imperfect. Next, to introduce the old, long Old Testament quote, it is mentioned that God found blame also in the people. The people also were imperfect, defiled, and unworthy. They were morally blemished and rebellious. Thus, there is a double faultiness, one with the covenant and with the people. Neither of them were blameless. And to prove this radical remark, the author now quotes a long passage from the Old Testament, which is really kind of brilliant. If saying that the Old Covenant, being defective, is deeply offensive, then you can allay much of this offense by letting the Old speak of its own faults. For it's kind of hard to argue with the law's own self-assessment. Thus, he cites for us a long text from Jeremiah 31, which is one of the longest Old Testament quotes in the entire New Testament. And he drills down into this Old Testament passage. He opens up, Behold, the days are coming. Now, we're not exactly sure the date of the ch- chapter 31 in Jeremiah, but most likely it was preached shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by Babylon. Hence, the long and, long and intense has been Jeremiah's heralding of God's wrath that was going to be poured out upon Judah. 
The exile was already a foregone conclusion. It is, it was a certainty without a whiff of doubt. Therefore, in this 31st chapter of Jeremiah, the Lord addresses a better future that lies on the other side of the death of exile. In fact, this chapter is a series of pictures of the grander redemption after the judgment of exile. So the days that are coming are the Messianic period. In our lingo, it's the New Testament age. And at this time, the Lord promises to make a new covenant with Israel and Judah. Now here, Israel and Judah stand for all of God's people, which is impressive since at the time of Jeremiah's preaching, Israel had already been long destroyed and lost among the nations. And the same death, scattering, would spring on Judah soon enough. To make a covenant with Israel and Judah is to bring the dead back to life. It's to find what was lost. And so Judah and Israel are fine representatives of the gospel going to the nations. Yes, us Gentiles, who were once dead and lost, are well included in God's people as Israel and Judah. And yet, with his people the Lord will make a new covenant. Now, the author of Hebrews actually tweaks the language here. Jeremiah writes, the Lord will make, but Hebrews pens, the Lord will complete or consummate the new covenant. Now, this fits with the language of perfection that Hebrews is so fond of. The Lord will perfectly consummate the new covenant. That, that meaning this new covenant will be faultless and ideally reach completion. And yet what makes this covenant new? And it is new compared to what? For new implies a contrast and a comparison. Well, the Lord lays it out. The promised new covenant will not be like the one that the Lord made with the fathers when he brought them out of Egypt. This old covenant, then, is not the one made with David or with Abraham or Noah, but it's the Mosaic covenant. The Sinai covenant ratified post-Exodus is the faulty first covenant contrasted with the new. And Sinai was defective first because they broke it. By the people's endless transgressions and rebellions, they shattered the terms of the Mosaic covenant. And this betrays a double faultiness. One, the people were warped by their own depravity. And two, the covenant was deficient by being breakable. As you know, the Lord can create things that are unbreakable. And he can create things that are fragile. And he fashioned the mosaic as brittle and flimsy. For by their sins, the covenant was shattered like a pot smashed upon a rock. And with the stipulations of the covenant wrecked, the Lord neglected his people. That is, he forsook them. The Lord cast off his people in the judgment of God-forsakenness. This no concern for them means they were disowned by God. To be exiled, to taste the spiritual death of being scattered amid darkness, without God and without hope. 
The Mosaic Covenant became defunct as its stipulations were violated in disobedience and as its curses were drained out to the fullest. A broken and judged covenant is like an uninhabitable ruins of a ghost town. The spot is spoiled and you need to find a new location. Thus the Lord promises a new covenant. He sets forth a relationship of life to replace what was dead. And Jeremiah keeps listing off the improvements of this new one. As he says in those coming days, this is what the new covenant will be like in distinction from the old. First, I will put my laws into their minds and write them upon their hearts. And yet, what is the significance of the law being penned upon your heart? Well, there's two connections found here. First, in Jeremiah 17, the Lord said that sin was inscribed on the hearts of Judah, which resulted in the people being only able to sin all the time. Sin written upon the heart yields nothing but sin in our lives. Secondly, Jeremiah's language about the heart goes back to the book of Deuteronomy. Now there, as you'll remember, the Lord commanded that Israel should love him with all their heart and that their obedience would be their righteousness. Next, the Lord ordered Israel in Deuteronomy 10 to circumcise their own hearts, which is an imperative to change your nature from sinful to disobedient. Then in Deuteronomy 29, the Lord said in verse 3 that he had not yet given Israel a heart to understand in order to obey. Yes, under Moses, the Lord commanded the people to have a new heart, but he did not give them such a new heart. So their hearts remained branded with sin instead of the law. Finally, in Deuteronomy 30, the Lord promised after exile to circumcise Israel's heart for them, which is equivalent to putting the law on their hearts. The law on the heart, then, signifies both regeneration and justification. The law inside of us means that God has remade our hearts from sinful to obedient, from being defiled to being pure, so that we are then able to obey. Also, the law-filled heart stands for righteousness, moral merit before God. To carve the law on our hearts is then for the Lord to impute his righteousness to us. The Mosaic Covenant ordered us to change our hearts and to earn our own righteousness. But in the new, both of these are God's gift freely bestowed. Hence, in Jeremiah 24, it says that the Lord will give his people a new heart in order to know him. Thus, here, note the result of this gifted, righteous heart. Again, he says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is called the covenant formula. It summarizes the ideal relationship of our Lord, um, where he belongs to us and we belong to him. This is that sweet intimacy of dual possession 
He is ours and we are his. And yet what stands out about this warm communion is its foundation. For in the Mosaic Covenant, this it also had the covenant formula as its goal. In Exodus 19, the Lord said, I will be your God and you will be my people. But what came next made a world of difference. It says, if you obey my commandments. Yes, under the law, the covenant formula rested upon a condition, the if of obedience. Covenant communion depended upon the yet-to-be-performed righteousness of humans. And human obedience is about as stable as quicksand. But here the covenant formula is set upon the mantle of a divine gift. The Lord grants a new heart. He imparts his righteousness into our hearts so that then he becomes our God and we his people. God's gift is the rock foundation of this new and improved covenant relationship. Which results then in the next blessing, which says, everyone will know the Lord. No longer will they instruct or teach one another to know God, for they will all know Yahweh. Now this knowledge and this no teaching doesn't refer to the educational. That is, the end of this teaching doesn't mean that all teaching offices are excluded from within the church. No, instead, this encompasses more relational knowledge. It means to love, to trust, and to be loyal to. It is to know in the biblical sense. It focuses more on conversion than sanctification. Indeed, it means that everyone in the covenant community will know God savingly. Now, in the New Testament, there is an already-not-yet aspect to this. Namely, before the second coming, weeds are still mixed in with the wheat within the covenant community. But in glory, all will be saved and resurrected. Additionally, everyone knowing the Lord goes from the least to the greatest. Now, these bookends could be social, low class to noble, or they could be age, youngest to oldest. Either way, The young and the ignoble are not excluded because of their lack, while the elderly or the high class do not obtain it by their own acuteness. We tend to associate unworthiness with that which is low and worthiness with the great. And yet in the new covenant, knowing God is not earned by human merit, nor is it forfeited by human demerit. Union with God for salvation is not based on our age or status, but on the power of the Lord's mercy. God's grace will rescue to himself everyone from the impoverished infant to the noble grandma. Moreover, this bringing all the saints to a saving knowledge of God is rooted in one more divine bounty. Verse 12. In fact, the Lord's work in this verse is actually the base layer for all the other layers of the new covenant. This is a case where the uh, of saving the best for last, 
of examining the bedrock at the end. For logically, verse 12 is the foundation for all the other blessings here. And yet, as a crescendo, the Lord promises last to say, I will forgive their iniquities and I will not remember their sins any longer. Now, in the Old Covenant, to forgive and to forget sin are similar, but they're not synonymous. Under Moses, to forgive spared you as an individual from full full punishment, and it preserved your relationship with God. Forgiveness often had the force of reconciliation under Sinai. Forgiveness, though, did not erase all punishment. So for God to remember sin, this meant that he would still punish it. To forget sin, then, means zero punishment. And we have numerous examples of this dynamic in the Old Testament. For example, in Numbers 14, when Israel rebelled in the wilderness, the Lord forgave them to preserve the relationship. But note, he still judged them all as all 20 years and older died in the wilderness. Similarly, after David confessed his sins of adultery and murder, God forgave him, but his sins were still punished by four of his sons dying. When King Manasseh of Judah repented of his notorious wickedness, he was forgiven. And yet for his sin, all of Judah went into exile. Yes, this relationship between forgiveness and forgetting is exhibited in Exodus 34 itself, where it says there that the Lord forgives iniquity, but he also visits the iniquity of the parents on the children to the third and fourth generation. You see, forgiveness sustained your relationship with God, but remembering sin meant that sin still had to be fully paid for, and typically by generational or representational retribution. Furthermore, forgiveness and forgetfulness was not part of the fabric of the Mosaic Covenant. In Exodus, the covenant was not ratified upon forgiveness, but on the righteousness of Moses and on the people swearing to obey. Likewise, the strict demands of justice insisted under the law that sins could not simply be forgotten without being fully paid for. Thus, as we read in Deuteronomy 29, it said that the Lord would not be willing to forgive, but his anger would surely pour out all the curses of the covenant. Similarly, after Joshua renewed the Mosaic Covenant in Joshua 24, he said there that the Lord is a jealous God and he will not forgive your sins and transgressions. Forgiveness and uh, and forgetfulness were not an inherent part of the Mosaic Covenant. But they are in the New. In the New Covenant, the Lord forgives you and promises never again to bring your sins into judicial remembrance. For the Almighty to forget all your sin means that your punishment has been erased 
so that no more condemnation stands against you. In Christ, you are reconciled to the Father and you are rescued from all punishment and condemnation. This is so far superior that it leaves us breathless. Me, a wretched sinner, is forgiven? My countless rebellions, the endless debt of my sin, is blotted out and forgotten as if it never existed. No way. This is too good to be true, which is why it's called the gospel. Indeed, why the new, this is, it is why the new covenant is better than the old. By creating a new covenant, the old one then becomes obsolete. When the new is installed, there remains nothing left for the old. When you get a new dishwasher, you have no more need for the old one. And so also, what is obsolete and old is near to vanishing. The antiquated, the decrepit, and the dilapidated are consigned to the trash compactor. In fact, the word for vanish here is a regular word in the book of Jeremiah where it means ruination and demolition. This is destruction that happened to Jerusalem and the old covenant in exile. The point being that just as the Mosaic covenant was destroyed by the Lord through Babylon, so also it is destined for obliteration in 70 A.D. With the passing away of the theocracy, the old covenant was laid to rest in the grave of history. You are freed then from the old covenant, and you are liberated unto the new and better covenant, mediated for us in Jesus Christ. All the superior newness of Christ's covenants is yours through grace. The old didn't promise forgiveness, but complete pardon reconciles you to the Father through the Son. Like an elephant, the old covenant never forgot your sins, but in the new, the most amazing wonder falls to you. The Almighty forgets your sins. The blood of Jesus erased every last stain of your transgressions. For Christ's righteousness paid off the last penny of your debt and purchased you heaven itself. In the Son, then, the Father sees you justified and free from all condemnation. And before this stunning superiority of the new covenant, what else should we do but believe And rejoice. Dear saints, you belong to the Father and to the Son, and the Father and Son belong to you. You are wedded to your Savior with no possibility of divorce. So then let us give thanks. May we delight in the betterness of Jesus, in the betterness of the new covenant, and may we never seek to go back to the first, to that obsolete covenant. But may we rejoice before the Lord in the new covenant now and until he brings us to glory when we will worship him perfect forever. And may he hasten that day.
Amen.